and Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode, we will be discussing China's role and influence in the international human rights regime. China began participating in the international human rights regime in 1982 and became a member of the UN Human Rights Council in 2006. Despite memberships in these organizations dedicated to protecting human rights, China has been under international scrutiny for human rights abuses, including against its own Uyghur population. In protests of China's alleged abuses, international companies have made statements against forced labor, and countries have also organized diplomatic boycotts of the 2002 Beijing Winter Olympics. Given international criticisms of China's human rights abuses, why has China been involved and active in international human rights efforts, and how do China's abuses shape its participation? Here to discuss China's role in the human rights regime, we are joined by Dr. Rana Imbolden. Dr. Imbolden is a senior fellow with the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas Austin. Previously, she served in many roles in the U.S. Department of State, including in the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Her first book, China and the International Human Rights Regime. Examines China's role in the international human rights regime from 1982 to 2017. Rana, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to start the podcast today by first tackling a basic question: How does China define human rights, and how does the Chinese definition of human rights differ from Western notions of human rights? So China does view human rights somewhat differently. The West tends to emphasize civil and political rights: the right for us to participate in elections, the right to be safe from encroachments of the state、um, with regard to police questioning or arrest. But China tends to focus on and favor economic rights. Um, especially the right to development, and there's lots of language、um, that China uses, talking about the importance of、uh, alleviating poverty or bringing people to a stable level of livelihood in terms of life expectancy and the like. China also tends to take on, even if it mouths support for. The universality of the human rights regime. It does take this on by saying that human rights should be contingent based on the national conditions of a country, and that religious differences, po- political differences, and cultural differences should also be things that are taken into account in the realization and implementation of international human rights standards. Rana, it seems like what you're saying is that, from the Chinese perspective, there are no universal human rights. Human rights is very contingent on national conditions, including political realities within particular countries. Yes, I would say this is the thrust of what China says in the Human Rights Council and other parts of the human rights system. But Chinese diplomats would never say. That they don't agree with the universality of human rights, even though in practice, I think that is that is the case. Much of your research focuses on China's international human rights activities, 
including China's involvement in international organizations that advance or push for human rights issues. Could you share with us when and how China became more active internationally? First, I would note that during the Mao era, China was both unfamiliar and suspicious of human rights, and Chinese leaders were very dismissive of these concepts, even labeling it uh, bourgeois. In the early 1980s, this gradually began to shift. China entered into the human rights regime, participated in the UN Commission on Human Rights. This, of course, though, was interrupted by the 1989 Tiananmen massacre. Which fundamentally changed China's relationship with and view of the international human rights regime. We have to remember that Tiananmen did not only lead towards condemning the use of violence, but it also led to actions that impacted China's material interests. So the U.S., the EU, and a range of other countries also imposed sanctions and suspended diplomatic ties that were instituted in the wake of Tiananmen. These hurt China's economic and security interests. So China lost access to international lending worth about 2.3 billion, faced EU and U.S. sanctions that restricted weapon sales, and it lost bilateral aid worth about 11 billion dollars. And because of this experience, China really sees the international human rights scrutiny as potentially threatening its interests. China also became. Hostile and suspicious of the international human rights regime and efforts by outside actors to address human rights violations in China. So even though this eased somewhat in the mid to late 1980s with the advent of some domestic political and legal reforms and China's growing involvement in international regimes, China's participation in the human rights regime has lagged behind other issue areas. Although, in some respects, China has progressively expanded its participation in the human rights regime, including signing treaties and allowing UN special rapporteurs to visit, it is always very cautious in doing so. And China often appears to be attempting to participate while holding back the full force of the human rights regime and its ability to spur domestic change in China. And of course,、uh, with Xi Jinping's ascent to power, China has become much more assertive in pushing back against human rights scrutiny and advancing its own human rights views. You mentioned that China became more active in human rights internationally since the early 1980s. Since then, and particularly recently, we've seen Beijing become more assertive internationally in advancing its understanding of human rights and pushing back against Western notions. What explains this evolution and change? You are so right in making that observation of China's shift away from a low-profile、uh, posture, and China's shift to a more muscular posture is very evident, especially after Xi Jinping's ascent to leadership. As to why, I think that much of this comes down to Chinese perceptions about its power. The Chinese leadership seems to feel that. They have gained sufficient political and economic muscle that they can step out and shape the regime. That they can lobby and recruit enough support from other countries for its positions, and that they can push back much more forcefully against human rights scrutiny. And this manifests in a number of ways. Starting about five years ago, China began to spearhead its own initiatives and resolutions in the UN Human Rights Council. Prior to this, it never did so. 
and Chinese diplomats are propagating their own ideas. And many of China's uh, ideas in this regard seek to dilute the force and the content of the international human rights regime. Aside from weakening the regime itself, I think China is also trying to shape the substance of the regime, not only so that it doesn't present as much a, of a threat to China, but also because I think a secondary motivation is because of China's efforts to expand its influence. For example, many recent Chinese resolutions include a number of Shiisms, and some of the resolutions Phrases like win-win, mutually beneficial cooperation are prevalent. And China, these are, even though these are ill-defined concepts, they also do contain some damaging ideas in terms of favoring cooperation and dialogue over meaningful, robust uh, monitoring of countries and their records. Thank you, Rana. In your book on China and international human rights regime, you mentioned that China views the state as responsible for the well-being and protection of its citizens, while most Western states view governments as the perpetrators of human rights abuses. So how does this difference about the role of the state impact how China and the West view human rights? In your view, can this difference be reconciled? This is where context and history really shape ideas. So China's Historical experiences prior to the founding of the PRC, when the Chinese state often lacked the capacity to govern, such as providing services, providing public security, or ensuring stability, these have all shaped the Chinese view. Then, with the arrival of the CCP's rule, which emphasized a strong, omnipresent state, this was further underscored. So China, both historically prior to and after the CCP, has favored a strong state. And I'm not sure that this dissonance can be reconciled, but I also don't think it is the most significant area of tension between the West and China. Other significant areas of tension, I would say, also relate to differences over a right to development and the extent to which the international human rights regime should be empowered to monitor and scrutinize the records of states. Another area of divergence that relates directly to ideas about the role of the state is to what extent should non-state actors enjoy freedom of association? The West is not only comfortable with, but supportive of civil society, but China's views of the state means that it really wants to contain and cap the role that civil society actors are allowed to play in terms of human rights. And, and we've seen that over the last 10 years, a number of Chinese NGOs that engaged in rights advocacy have been shuttered, repressed, or faced other kinds of punitive actions by the Chinese state. I also want to caveat this answer that even though China views the state as responsible for the well-being and protection of its citizens, in terms of human rights, this doesn't necessarily mean that the Chinese government views itself as serving the people. So the CCP leadership is ruling in such a way that they seem to value accruing power for their own purposes, retaining political control, and gaining personal material benefit. And I also see that under Xi Jinping, there has been such an overreach in terms of state power in the form of the use of facial recognition technology, 
detention of Uyghurs and also the introduction of controls like the social credit system that I think any benefit in a state that has the capacity to govern the country is reversed by the ways that the Chinese state is overstepping and misusing its power. In terms of China misusing its power, how does China's involvement in the international human rights system impact the legitimacy and efficacy of the system itself? Well, certainly we should hope for robust uh, participation from all states, since this generally does add to the legitimacy and efficacy of the international regime. So in some ways, we should encourage China's participation, but the nature of China's involvement also needs to be considered. China tends to participate in a very superficial way. So although it is procedurally compliant, such as submitting written reports, it is not substantively compliant, such as bringing legislation and domestic practices into conformity with international human rights standards. And there are also some troubling aspects of China's participation in the regime as it tries to interfere with the functioning of the regime. It has, for example, interfered with visits by UN experts serving as part of the special procedures during their visits to China. They have been restricted from gaining access to civil society actors. And China also engages in behavior that goes beyond lobbying or diplomacy to actually intimidate UN staff and experts, including those serving on treaty bodies, particularly those related to torture and disability rights. And China also prevents civil society actors from engaging with UN mechanisms, such as preventing them from traveling to Geneva to participate in activities such as the Universal Periodic Review or treaty body reviews, and then retaliating in some cases. And finally, China often displays a very instrumental approach to participation in the international human rights regime, where it tends to attack foes and defend allies. And this goes all the way back to its initial participation in the human rights regime. For example, when China first began observing the International Labor Conference in the ILO uh, in the mid to early 1980s, an ILO official recalled observing the PRC delighting and laughing during the Soviet Union's review. And this was a period when there was the growing tension between Sino and Soviet diplomats. This also comes into play during the creation of the Human Rights Council, when China joins other countries in attempting to weaken or constrain the UN's special procedures system. And this is something that China did partly to ensure that it was looking out for the interests of other countries, such as the like-minded group. These countries often have marred records, and a number of them have faced the creation of special procedures focused solely on their countries. So China taking on this issue was really about protecting its human rights allies. And in the end, some of China's actions in this regard earned it vocal thanks from countries like Pakistan and Malaysia. What is a like-minded group? You mentioned Pakistan is in this group. Does this group view human rights differently than general Western notions of human rights? So the like-minded group, um, and I, I love talking about this, not because I like anything about their behavior, but because I don't think 
people talk enough about authoritarian collaboration in the UN human rights system. And this is a group that is made primarily of authoritarian countries, or at least countries with marred human rights records. And they engage in a number of kind of mutually beneficial protective actions. So they'll speak up during each other's universal periodic review sessions to defend each other. And they, in general, certainly hold views that are contrary to what most Western nations would consider. China has not had to lobby many of these countries to take on these views. There seems to be a meeting of the minds among these countries. And the main differences I would point to would be that these countries might mouth support for the universality of human rights, but they actually will push back in noting that the national conditions of a country, the economic development of a country, religious historical context should all be taken into account in the realization of human rights. And so I think there's a sense that these countries think that human rights are contingent. And if a country is less developed, it perhaps should get a bit of a pass on respecting human rights. Another area of agreement among these countries appears to be a focus on economic rights or a right to development, where these countries will speak out about the need for the UN and other areas of the human rights regime to focus on economic development. And these these countries will often say that you can't really respect or realize human rights if people are stuck in poverty. So they tend to downplay civil and political rights, the right to form civil society organizations, the right to form labor unions, the right to participate in elections. These are all rights that this group of countries would minimize and downplay. And just for a little more context, is this like-minded group growing in number, or is this just a small number of authoritarian governments? I'm guessing both China and Russia play quite an influential role in this group. Yes, you're definitely right about Russia and China playing an influential role. I have done some research on this, tracking the like-minded group ever since it first emerged in the UN Commission on Human Rights. And in the commission, it initially started out with as maybe a group of about 20 countries. But in the UN Human Rights Council, it has expanded to roughly 50 countries. It is a group that doesn't require fixed membership. So countries have the flexibility to sign on to particular statements or not. But also the fact that it doesn't have fixed membership makes it more difficult to kind of, I hate to use the word target, but to target these countries to try to challenge or take on these views or even discourage countries from affiliating with the like-minded group. When was the like-minded group formed? You mentioned it has evolved quite a bit over time. Right. It first came uh, into being in the 1990s in the UN Commission on Human Rights. And that's where we see countries like Pakistan, Cuba, China, Russia playing a role in bringing that group together. Even though a few other scholars have suggested 
that China played a leading role in forming the like-minded group in the 1990s. I found very little support for that. And in fact, during interviews with some diplomats who played a role in bringing uh, the like-minded group together, they confirmed that there were other countries that were much more active. Pakistan, Cuba, and even Egypt were more involved in the early stages of bringing the like-minded group together. However, this does change in the UN Human Rights Council. And around, I would say, 2011, you see the group kind of re-emerging with greater strength. And it is around 2011 that China does appear to have played much more of a leadership role. In the UN Human Rights Council, for example, China was the first country to deliver a statement on behalf of the like-minded group. Thank you, Rana. I want to now transition to focus on China's role in the UN Human Rights Council. But before we do that, could you give us a bit of background on what the UN Human Rights Council is and why is it important? The Human Rights Council is the premier body in the UN for addressing and discussing human rights. Its predecessor was the UN Commission on Human Rights, which existed for about six decades. And the UN Commission on Human Rights was increasingly losing any credibility, largely because this body failed to take on country-specific resolutions, largely because it's a political body. What I mean by political is the membership is made of UN member states. And often those countries might not vote on resolutions or initiative based on principle necessarily. And you would often see them voting based on political alliances or even being concerned about angering a particular country such as China. And in fact, after Tiananmen, you see that China is often able to engage in diplomatic maneuvering in the UN Commission on Human Rights to prevent passage of a resolution on its record. China's behavior in this body did contribute to growing uh, a growing lack of credibility or loss of credibility for the Commission on Human Rights. And over time, a there was a growing chorus that this body needed to be reformed. There was a high-level panel developed by the UN that recommended that this body be dismantled and a new body, the council, replace it. And also, Secretary General Kofi Annan also championed a new replacement body. Human rights organizations such as Am Amnesty International also favored replacing this body. And so it was finally, it was as consensus was emerging around 2004, UN member states began to take action to replace it, starting with a UN uh, General Assembly resolution that dismantled the commission and then replaced it with the Human Rights Council. So the Human Rights Council, in terms of the existence of the UN is a fairly new body coming into existence in just 2006. And because institutional reform um, within the UN happens so infrequently, this is a body that we will probably have to live with for many more decades. And so any ability 
by the PRC or like-minded group countries to weaken the council's ability to take on the records of specific countries will impact for the foreseeable future how effectively the UN is able to take on the marred records of a variety of countries. China has been actively involved in the UN Human Rights Council since its formation. What motivated China's involvement? Has China's involvement shaped proceedings as well as activities of the Human Rights Council? My chapter on the creation of the UN Human Rights Council was one of the more colorful chapters to research because there were so many rich interviews and documentation of the PRC's behavior and positions. And in this chapter, there was also a very vivid episode in Geneva when the PRC was holding up agreement on the institution building package, which was the final step in creating the Human Rights Council. And because PRC diplomats wouldn't agree to this package and held up agreement past midnight, it threatened to unravel the entire package. The holdup related to China's desire to include language that required any country, uh, any country-specific resolution needed to enjoy uh, the sponsorship of one-third of the countries in the Human Rights Council and then two-thirds of the countries to pass. So this would have paralyzed the Human Rights Council's ability to use country-specific resolutions. It was Ambassador de Alba who was serving as Human Rights Council president, and he's a very talented Mexican diplomat. And he had to negotiate with the with the PRC, who were get diplomats who were getting instructions from Beijing as to whether they should uh, they were allowed to concede. And this was such a vivid example with the whole proceedings of the Human Rights Council being held up, and even to the point that. The mariachi band that the Mexican mission had hired even had to be put on hold from playing during what was hoped to be a celebratory reception because diplomats were having to wait on the outcome of de Alba's negotiations with the PRC. And this goes back to how much the PRC detests human rights resolutions, any attention on its records specifically or being singled out. And, and this is, as I mentioned, traced back to the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. There were um, also numerous aspects to the Human Rights Council that do reflect some of China's views. But as I detail in this chapter, none of these outcomes were secured by the PRC alone. And I think the timing is also important. So this is still in around 2006, 2007. And so China was not yet asserting itself as much. And so was working through and with a group of countries. And in all of these instances, when the PRC was successful, it was because it was working with a number of countries, especially those that come from the like-minded group. So it's actually hard to point to one particular outcome of the Human Rights Council that reflects just China's impact. But I think one thing that is worth noting is China's frequent insistence on approaching human rights through, quote, dialogue and cooperation has shaped over time the, the Human Rights Council. And these are phrases that appear frequently in the UN General Assembly resolution that created the council. 
And I think over time, you see countries using these phrases to suggest that robust monitoring or focusing on any one country through a resolution is not what they would consider dialogue and cooperation. You mentioned earlier that China has been more active in the Human Rights Council and internationally since Xi Jinping rose to power. What has China been focused on recently? China under Xi Jinping is taking a very active and forceful posture and really trying to shape the content of the regime and propagating their own ideas and concepts. I mentioned the phrases mutually beneficial cooperation or win-win. These seem to be Chinese speak for refuting any kinds of robust human rights monitoring or attention on specific countries and abuses. And by overemphasizing cooperation rather than scrutiny, the risk is that it gives countries a pass. And it's especially dangerous because countries with the most worrisome human rights practices are likely to be those that will refuse to cooperate internationally on human rights. Thus far, I think that China is meeting with a high degree of success because it is able to recruit developing world support for its resolutions and ideas, and also because the U.S. has largely abdicated leadership in Geneva. I think this is very significant because the combination of China's power and its desire to contain and influence the trajectory of the human rights regime means that this regime is going to face a much more forceful and concerted Chinese effort to hollow it out. And the world has not yet seen China's actions with regard to this regime. Even though China was often annoyed or bothered by actions that the UN Commission on Human Rights attempted to take uh, vis-a-vis its record, China never really tried to destroy or contain the human rights regime. So I think that for the foreseeable future, we should be very ready to see this significant Chinese efforts to attack this part of the UN. Great, thank you. As we look into the future, and as China's economic and political power grows, What, in your view, does this mean for the future of China and human rights? Where do you see China headed? I think domestically, it means China is much more bold in abusing human rights. And we see this with the repression and detention of Uyghurs, with estimates that over a million or more have been placed in facilities that resemble concentration camps, and this is against their will, and many of these Uyghurs are essentially disappeared. So they might not be formally arrested, but there's simply no record of their whereabouts. And even those Uyghurs that are not in detention face such severe repression that their movements within the Uyghur region are severely constrained with a combination of police checkpoints, facial recognition technology, security-enabled cameras and the like. And then also we see this bold Chinese domestic behavior in terms of Hong Kong and the repression of protesters, even to the point that China has hunted some of them down as they've tried to flee overseas. And I think this is largely because 
The PRC leadership thinks that they have sufficient global weight that they can engage in this kind of repression without suffering consequences. I think the severity of what is going on domestically also reflects China's calculations that it can marshal protection from other countries, which it has been doing. For example, members of the like-minded group will sign letters defending China's behavior. So these are all worrisome trends, both in terms of domestic issues, but it also spells a lot of trouble globally. And what I mean there is that China's efforts to erode the human rights regime isn't only going to mean China might get a pass, but it means that other countries will also face weaker international monitoring mechanisms. For example, China's recent tenure on the committee that selects individuals to serve in the special procedure system was an opportunity for the PRC to veto any individuals who might insist on robust monitoring or accountability mechanisms. And because this part of the human rights regime, the special procedures, has often been described as the crown jewels or the eyes and the ears of the human rights regime, these individuals um, can play a, a very important role. So the impact of what China is doing to protect itself is not going to be contained to China. It's going to mean that the rest of the world also faces weaker human rights monitoring. In terms of next steps, how do you view the recent Chinese Politburo study session on human rights development? I think this needs to be viewed in terms of two things. One that I already touched on, which goes to definitions of human rights and then control over the narrative. So, you know, I touched on the right to development and the Chinese news reporting on the party study sessions does indicate that the content was very much focused on the CCP's record on building, quote unquote, a moderately prosperous society and solving the problem of absolute poverty. It also underscored the importance of survival as the basis for the enjoyment of human rights. I would also say that a lot of this seems to be based on a common approach that the CCP has to human rights, which is controlling the narrative and content. So the party is okay with talking about it as long as they are the ones talking about it and not independent non-governmental actors in China like activists or independent-minded scholars. Anybody who has independent views on human rights would face very heavy restrictions on their ability to say anything that really goes against uh, the party's line on human rights. And I, I also have to say that China is very good at rhetoric. And I think this is largely rhetorical, that China is mainly just giving lip service to an idea without really taking any meaningful, substantive action. And trying to present the PRC as open to human rights, when in reality, they really try to restrict any kind of challenge to the party's authority to speak about China's record on human rights. And as I mentioned, human rights uh, actors from China, civil society actors, uh, members of the Weitran or rights protection movement are not only discouraged from traveling to Geneva to participate and offer their own views on human rights, but 
they are either stopped at airports or if they do somehow manage to get to Geneva, then they face uh, retaliation later. Rana, I want to end this podcast with one final question for you. Is the United States and international community doing enough to counter China's growing influence internationally with respect to human rights? So overall, I don't think the U.S. and other countries are doing enough. And this goes back all the way to the 1990s, where even as China was still sort of trying to dig itself out of the Tiananmen Square consequences of its repression of those protesters, other countries were already sort of trying to make sure that they didn't anger China too much especially with regard to losing out on economic opportunities in China. And, you know, if we consider China in the 1990s, yes, there there was the potential. Many companies and countries wanted to be able to participate and benefit from the Chinese market. But even now, China's economic heft is so great that you have such a huge range of companies and the like that do not want to be shut out of the Chinese market. And so I think that China has all along been able to use the size of its country and economic potential to avert very robust human rights scrutiny. And so it's actually in around 1997 that China sort of gains its first win in this area when the EU said that it would no longer sponsor a country-specific resolution on China in the UN Commission on Human Rights. And so one thing that I think countries have historically failed to do is be consistent. And this taught China very early on that they could use their political and economic heft to thwart human rights uh, scrutiny. And now that China is so much more powerful, I think that the challenge is much more difficult, but we see that the consequences are enormous. So internationally, one thing that the U.S. especially failed to do is be present in Geneva in the Human Rights Council. I think it's a good step that the U.S. has re-engaged with the Human Rights Council, but the U.S. itself now faces a huge credibility loss that it will need to slowly build back up by being active and working with other countries in the council, not only on China, but on a range of human rights-related issues and initiatives to show that it is serious about working in the human rights regime. And then domestically, I think that we really need to see the U.S. and other countries that are concerned about the repression in China to work collaboratively together to either deliver joint statements in the U.N. or I don't know that any of the countries are ready to do this, but to put forward resolutions or even call for a special session of the Human Rights Council for China's record to be considered. I will say that the introduction of sanctions in response to the repression of Uyghurs is a good start, but it's not yet enough to really show the Chinese state that the world is watching, that there will be consistent pressure and that countries can work collaboratively to try to ease human rights repression in China. 
Thank you, Rana. This is a very rich discussion on how China views human rights, as well as the implications of China's human rights activities internationally. Thank you again for joining us.